Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you along with Spencer Corson. His book is called The Safety Trap. His website is linked up at coasttocoastam.com. Spencer, in your book, The Safety Trap, you mentioned social networking and how, and I have noticed this too, people put on where they are, the food they're eating, the restaurant they're in, everything's on social network these days. You're saying that's way too much. The average person has no real idea how much personal information they share over a six-month period. And I, and I, and I say this to not concern, you know, not to be uh, you know, a fear monger, because what you post online may not be the reason you are targeted, but what you post online will make those who want to target you more successful in doing so. So, you know, I, I, I have an example in the book where uh, a, a friend of a, of a particular couple uh, reemerged from, you know, after a, some years of, of, of separation and kind of reacquainted himself with the family and then was basically doing so just to rob him oh. and followed, you know, he knew that they had an anniversary coming up and that his wife was very active on social media. And so his wife was, you know, posting, this is where we're going for dinner. And this is the itinerary that my husband made for. Oh, we're going to be out of the house for three hours. Instagram stories as a countdown clock to how much time he had left to rob them. And he did. And he did. You talk about a coffee house alias. What is that? Uh, so uh, a coffee house alias is I, I always ask my clients, hey, what's your Starbucks name? And I say that because, you know, coffee houses love to curate that interpersonal dynamic by, hey, what's your name and what's your drink and how can I make this order specialized for you? But, you know, it's great for them to then call out your name when, you're, when your order is ready. But then you're walking around the rest of the day with your name emblazoned like a billboard on the side of your coffee cup telling everyone, their friend, your, your name when they had absolutely no business doing so. And then after being engaged in, in small, you know, chit chat, what if like, you know, the, the creepy guy from down the street now becomes an inappropriate pursuer because now he not only knows your name, but knows how you like your coffee, mm-hmm. the coffee shop you get it to every day. And like I said about the oversharing, it's just those little pieces of information, which on their own may seem benign, but as they, are, you know, added to a, you know, kind of like a jigsaw puzzle where one piece may be not all that significant, but when that piece is added to another piece and another piece and another piece, you can really start to put a mosaic together about a person's preferences, likes, behaviors, and, and, and likelihood of outcome. And it's probably safer to do that, isn't it? I, I always like to you know, just tell everyone to embrace their, their own little like Harry Matheson or Jason Bourne and just you know, just because you're being friendly with someone doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be their friend. So there's nothing wrong with just, uh, you know, employing just a little bit of fun spycraft just to ensure your own safety. And with that, you have a chapter where you say, and I find this to be fascinating, being too polite sometimes can be dangerous and backfire on people. Absolutely. Our unwillingness to offend another should never come at the cost of defending ourselves. One of you know the biggest safety traps that we all fall into is our unwillingness to be you know disagreeable, to just say that you know a, a yes to someone else should never come at the cost of a no to ourselves. I mean, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, Bombshell, which was about like the Roger Ailes uh, scenario. Oh yeah. But there's yeah. A, a, 
uh, there's a there's a great scene in that movie where you know he tries to um, he tries to get with the Megyn Kelly character, and Megyn Kelly is just like, no, absolutely not, and sort of like you know immediately puts an end to it. And then that's contrasted against the Margot Robbie character who wants to get on air, and so he says, well, you know, give me a little twirl, and she knows that she shouldn't, but she doesn't want to upset him, so she instead of saying you know, hey, that, absolutely, Mr. Rails, why don't we schedule a screen test? We can get all, get all the cameras mm-hmm. up and on, I'll do whatever you want to. But she instead stands up and gives him a little twirl. And then what he's basically doing at that point, and what all predators do is they look for weakness that they can exploit. Because if you're willing to not be so disagreeable in the little things, you're probably not going to stand up for yourself in the big thing. Good point. And in that exact scene, he says, all right, well, now just hike your skirt up a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more. And all he's doing is just seeing how far can I push this? How much is she going to stand up for herself? Because like most predators, they don't want to go after the hard target. They want to go after the weakest of the herd. And so the more that you can promote your own protective posture, and I'm not saying that, you know, being too polite means you have to be mean, but being polite is a courtesy. Standing up for yourself is a priority. And uh, what about homeless people? I mean, I, I tend to give money to them because I feel sorry for them. And is that is that in that category of being too polite or not? Well, here's the thing with, I mean, I don't ever want to tell anyone that they can't be a, a, a good contributing member to, to their society. And, you know, I have actually some pretty good relationships with some some homeless people here and around Austin that I see while I'm walking my dog or I'm doing, uh, you know, doing my workouts or, or what have you. But I personally don't like to give people that I see all the time money because I don't want to frame that expectation that I don't want to frame the expectation that there is an expectation that I will be giving them. Well, what I tell them so, is I, you got you got me yesterday, remember? And then they go, oh, yeah, yeah. And then they leave me alone. I mean, that, that's great if you can establish that rapport and you're comfortable doing so. But I personally always recommend give money to the agencies that, that help them. Or if you want to give them a sandwich or if you want to. I mean, I'm never going to tell anyone that they can't do something all the, you know, they can't do something to help their, their fellow neighbor, their fellow citizen, sure. their, their fellow, you know. Um, well, what's the downside, though? Why are you but, concerned about that? Because... It's very likely that that will go from you gave them a dollar that now they want five. You gave them five, now they want ten. And what you're really doing is putting yourself at a a tactical disadvantage to have to say no to someone who you once said yes to before. And why put yourself in a position where someone, you know, when, when anytime I'm assessing threats for public figures or celebrities mm-hmm. or you know, anyone who is in a public-facing position, a CEO, what have you. The people who always love us will always love us, but the people and the people who always hate us will mostly always hate us. But what is most concerning is the people who now hate us but used to love us because now there's an emotional investment in the grievance. And any time you cannot put yourself in that position to have that that concern arise should be taken. and. You know, there's 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 many many ways to help the homeless without direct action. Interesting, but if you can afford it and do it, no big deal. If you can afford it and do it, and then you can also ensure the safeguards for the future concerns which may arise from that, 
Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I, you I don't want them following you to your car and stuff like that. Right. You know. I think it's very important. Like a lot of people like to play checkers, but a lot of life is chess. So if you can see what five moves down the down the board will look like, then absolutely do it as of your, you know, do it as best for you. But don't think for a second that just doing one thing once is going to be a one-time thing. Any special recommendations for parents? We've, you know, many of us who have been parents uh, and have kids. Uh, you know, I used to watch them like a hawk when they were little ones, uh, Spencer. You know, what's funny is that uh, I all of you know my 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 sister has kids, and all my friends who have kids, they watch them like hawks. And I don't remember my parents. I mean, my parents kicked me out the front door and said, "Don't come back till the street lights." <laughs> no, I don't know if that uh, kind of like sort of taught me to learn you know the streets a bit better. But I do think that there is a one of the chapters I have in the book is about overprotecting children because parents kind of want to safeguard their kids from the realistic you know, realities of the world. Yeah, there's a lot of wackos and, out um, there. There are a lot of wackos out there, but there are also a lot of really good people. Oh, yeah. Sure. One, of the th- one of the things I talk about is how stranger danger is a one-way street, how... If your child is alone and afraid, like I talk about, there's a, a section in the book where uh, we come across a mother who whose child went missing in Central Park, and my security detail, or the security detail that I was leading, helped the mother to uh, to find her child, and they found the child sitting alone on a on a bench on the other side of the park, and the mom was like, "How come you didn't you didn't ask for help?" And the child, you know, kind of cried out to her mom because everyone was a stranger, <laughs> and he's and been so, told, "Don't talk to strangers." Because they've been told, don't talk to strangers. Exactly. But yeah. so if you just explain to your child that it is, while it is not at all appropriate for an adult to ask a child for help, it is perfectly acceptable for a child to ask an adult for help. And so one of the things I, I champion in the book is the three F's of flags, family, and food. If you see a flag on a building or a flag on a uniform or a flag on a bag, that's probably a safe person to ask for help. If you see anyone who is serving food, whether that be the, the pretzel guy or the guy serving ice cream or, or the man or the woman, you know, uh, running whatever, you know, mm-hmm. ice cream cart they may have in the park, those are appropriate people to ask for help because you know that those people are going to be properly permitted. They're going to have a background check. They're going to be licensed. And of course, anytime you see other families, if you see another mother with a child, if you see another father with a child, if yeah. you see any other children with any other adult, it is very, it is a very safe assumption to know that those people will um, be absolutely prepared to to help your child. But what you do not want to do is put your child in a position where they are unprepared to participate in their own protection mm-hmm. because of some irrational feel that all strangers are bad. And you talk about safe havens. What are safe havens? So a safe haven is any place where you know you can go to be safe when you're which when you're, anytime you're outside of home. And one of the uh, the key, one of the first times that I really championed this was right after the Boston Marathon bombing, because so many people who were in and around that area were not intimately familiar with the with the cityscape of Boston as they were their own homes. Right. And so, one of the best things you can do if you are ever away on vacation or if you're ever away from home is. Identify those places where you know you can go to be safe. And one of those things, you know, there's always going to be police departments, firehouses, libraries. But one of the best ones is restaurants because you may not remember like where your hotel is, but you're definitely going to remember where you had lunch that day or where you had dinner or breakfast that morning. 
And the great thing about restaurants is, one, they can accommodate large crowds of people. Two, they're going to have food and water. Three, they're going to have restrooms. Four, they're going to have at least like, um, you know, some semblance of, of medical supplies for the cuts and bruises that occur in the kitchen. But most importantly, they're going to have hardline phones and Internet. So if you are in a situation like the Boston Marathon where the cell phone towers go down, you will still be able to communicate with your loved ones and let them know you're okay. And they have knives in the kitchen if, if you need something. And they have knives in the kitchen or you can hide in the, in the dry storage. Absolutely. Now, the, the basis of the book, The Safety Trap, A Security Expert Secrets for Staying Safe in a Dangerous World, are based on what kind of scenario? Or scenarios. Yeah, so the the safety trap is a phrase I coined a few years ago when helping my clients to understand the false sense of security which occurs when our fears have abated but risk remains, which is another way of saying that sometimes feeling safe is the most dangerous thing we do. And what I did and what I realized was that there were probably 15 or 16 of these so-called trappings that kept getting all of my clients into trouble. One of them may be avoidance, one of them may be overconfidence, one may be overprotecting children, one may be false equivalence. And what I really tried to do was using real world examples would say, hey, listen, here's something that happened to this TV star client of mine when she uh, started getting these inappropriate concerns from a, from a particular um, pursuer and she didn't want to deal with it and she kind of put them out of her mind and then you know, for a short time, she was able to do that. But then six weeks later, when this guy showed up on set, her um, reticence to address that present day concern allowed that concern to escalate into future crisis. Right. And so I say, here's what happened. Here's how it was allowed to happen. And here are five protective strategies that can keep that from happening to you. And basically, what I wanted to do was not scare people with, you know, you know, the, the, the crazy outlandish, um, you know, uh, overly dramatic concerns that may not impact them in their everyday life, but to address the very real concerns that all of us face in our everyday lives. And, you know, sometimes, uh, it's, it's one of those things where we don't, we don't, uh, we don't stub our toe on the things we notice. We stub our toe on the things we don't. But it's not like that, that, you know, that Lego in the kitchen just appeared on the floor. It was always there. You just weren't expecting to see it, so you didn't see it. And this book is really about raising our awareness to the real-world risks so that we can identify them before they escalate into reality. Is it healthy, Spencer, being afraid? Doesn't that kick your adrenaline into high gear and make you do things more efficiently? No. being, a, being You want to be a little bit afraid but you don't want to be anxious or have anxiety. Right. One of my, uh, are you familiar with, uh, have you ever seen any of like the Marvel movies or the Captain America? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one of my favorite scenes in, I think it's the first Avengers movie is, uh, Captain America turns to Bruce Banner and he says, Hey, Captain, time for you to get angry because we need the bad guy. And, uh, Dr. Banner kind of turns back and goes, well, that's my secret cap. I'm always angry. And and with that, he just like kind of like tears his shirt off and does his and, thing. Uh, you know, becomes the Hulk. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing there is that for most of of Doctor Banner's life, he had all of this anxiety about not being triggered because he didn't want the Hulk to come out from anywhere. And but by just 
understanding that if he just had that healthy sense of skepticism and that moderate dose of vigilance and kept that just a little bit of, of, of safety or that little bit of, of anger and fear at bay, that allowed him to keep control of his of his uh, of his of his uh, you know hookness. But when it was when he tried to avoid it or tried to you know ignore it, that's when the Hulk took over over him. And what I think that 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 particular uh, scene in that movie demonstrated rather well was we want to be in control of our fear. We don't want our fear to be in control of us. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.